Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Politics on the Couch, a podcast that tries to make sense of the world by talking to psychologists, psychiatrists, neuroscientists, anyone really who can teach us something about the way our minds respond to politics, and I suppose the way politicians mess with our minds. I'm Raphael Baer, a political columnist and writer, and I'm joined remotely by the producer of this podcast, Philip Berman. We've got a fantastic guest on this week, which we'll come to in a moment. But perhaps first, it might be worth uh, reflecting a bit on our first podcast, uh, the introductory one last week. We had some feedback and uh, most of it was good. That's uh, reassuring. Um, there was a question. Uh, oh, yeah. Came in, came in good from... It's good to know that people are listening. Thanks for listening. Uh, Joanna Perry in London. Given the fact that it's a politics on the couch, she was very interested in your psychological motivation for uh, doing this podcast. Oh, that's a nice, that's a nice, easy question. It flows a lot from a, a long-standing ambivalence I've felt about uh, covering politics as a journalist. Partly, I think maybe the sense that aspects of journalism had become sort of more part of the problem than part of the solution in terms of the way we'd all been sucked into a sort of a mode of, of game playing, Westminster Games, and the way that interacted also with the hyperactive news cycle uh, that meant that a lot of us uh, were writing or broadcasting uh, about the froth uh, and the chocolate sprinkles on top of the cappuccino as opposed to the actual kind of coffee underneath. Well, that's a terrible metaphor, but hopefully you know what I mean. And so I, I yeah, really liked the idea of thinking, what are the the sort of the, the fundaments of, of human motivation and behaviour that are happening underneath all that all that froth on the top? Is there a danger that you might alienate some of your um, associates? Because you know you must know a lot of political reporters who this is their you know, this is their job. They have to go out there and and you know file stuff every day. Um, I hope not, because I have I have no end of admiration for people who do that frontline stuff. I was never actually all that good at it. I wasn't a great reporter uh, or a story getter. And I think that side of it is is fantastically difficult and really important. I mean, that's really where you know the scoops and the getting the news are where government and power are held to account in politics. I think that the tricky bit 
uh, is is really more having retaining two perspectives simultaneously one which is you know what is new what is urgent and what has to be reported now uh, and what are the sort of the the essential things that that either never change or the part of human nature and that you have to just accommodate to or that change fantastically slowly and that it's really hard to see when your eyes are very close to the page so i if, if what i've said sounds like criticism of the industry that's definitely not what i mean i think uh, it's more uh, a sort of a, a self-criticism in that i was finding managing those two perspectives uh, challenging and quite like the idea of, of of spending a little bit more time uh, on the the second one okay well i hope that answers your question joanna and now on to this week's guest who is lord alderdice and i'm just going to read through a few bits about his very impressive cv he's a psychiatrist a psychotherapist he played a significant role in the talks leading up to the 1998 good friday agreement and he's a politician too for 11 years he was the leader of the alliance party in northern ireland during the good friday talks um some of the listeners might not be totally across the party system in Northern Ireland. Perhaps you might want to just shed a bit of light on that, Raf, what the Alliance Party was, is. The important thing about the, the Alliance Party is is that it was non-sectarian uh, in, in an environment where obviously sectarian uh, politics really defined so much about not just the institutions, but, but life, social relations, everything that happened uh, in Northern Ireland. And, and the interesting thing about, about John... Alderdice is that he came to it from that, as it were, sort of bipartisan perspective, uh, you know, a moderate liberal outlook. But also, interestingly, that he describes his reaction against sectarianism uh, and what he saw growing up in Northern Ireland as his motivation for becoming a psychiatrist and a psychotherapist before he then went into politics. And that's, I think, I hope, what makes him a particularly interesting guest for for this podcast for our discussion and he's also the honorary president of liberal international which is the world federation of liberal and progressive democratic political parties which um means that you and he will have agreed on everything then uh well uh, as you'll hear we kind of don't which is why it was an enjoyable conversation which like last podcast we could have gone on a lot longer but we were uh, rather constrained by time and this on this occasion, slightly unfortunately constrained by some technical problems in terms of recording the conversation, which hopefully haven't impeded the quality too much, but we'll leave that to the listeners, to the judge. Anyway, I started off uh, by asking him how his his background as a, as a psychotherapist and a psychiatrist really informed uh, his view of politics, how he brought that into politics. Let's have a listen. Political science, whenever I came into political life or was wanting to go into political life, explained things on the basis of people being rational actors who operated on the best socio-economic and power interests of themselves and their groups. It seemed clear to me that this was nonsense, that many people behave in ways which are not in their best rational self-interest, socially, economically or in terms of power. There are often other drivers, what one of my friends, Scott Atron, calls sacred values, which is not about religion at all. It's about things that transcend socioeconomic metrics. So I went into psychiatry and psychoanalysis to try to understand how people function initially as individuals. And then I came to understand that as groups, we're not merely a collection of individuals, 
we operate in complex systems and you need to understand how those function as well. And so when I'm thinking about politics and when I'm engaged in political life, whether it's in the speaker's chair or whether it's on the benches of a particular political party or whatever, I'm thinking to myself, what is going on for the people whom I'm listening to on my side, on the other side, on both sides, inside the chamber, outside the chamber? What is motivating them in terms of how they feel as well as what they think and believe? How they feel positively and negatively, angry and anxious, loving and hating, how they feel about those things. And how can I incorporate that in my way of understanding, not just of them as individuals, but as to how large groups function as well. So that dynamic, the, the tension between how people think and, and behave in groups as opposed to their individual selves, is something that, that actually really stands out from what you've written about your experience uh, in the Irish peace process, for example. You mentioned the difficulty in opening a dialogue between people who, because of their communal outlook, uh, hear what might seem like the same words uh, in completely different ways. That's true. Uh, and there is an, there's an art to this because you need to be able to bring out the differences of perspective because that's part of the struggle to represent all the diversity that there is, but also to take us forward to new ways of thinking that take out the best of everything. But that needs to be sustained by human relationships. I mean, it's a bit like the work that I, I did for many years as a doctor and psychiatrist. There's the technical aspect, there's the question of understanding pathology, and in the case of psychiatrists particularly, psychopathology, and engaging with that. But the human relationship with the patient is absolutely critical. And no matter how smart you are or how well-informed you are, if you don't have a relationship with the patient, the patient won't stick with the, with the treatment, they won't get better. You need that relationship. And politics needs that too. And in the context of Northern Ireland, you know, there were lots of things, but maybe someday I'll write about, about some of them. But, you know, one of the things as speaker I, I, I saw a lot was the interactions that there were. I'll give you one amusing example. There were in all of the parties um, members that liked to bet on the horses and people couldn't get out to act uh, for themselves. So, so there was one guy who acted as a runner and he would take the bet from people in each of the different parties and he would deliver the bet and then he would bring the money back and so on. So, you know, and there were other things that people were interested in. There were members of Sinn Féin and the Ulster Unionists and DHB who liked to fish. And so they would exchange ideas about, about fishing flies and things of that kind. Those human relationships are absolutely crucial to make things work. And when those break down, as they sometimes do, for internal or external reasons, political or non-political reasons, it's very difficult for politics to work. If you happen upon uh, a common interest in, in fishing or football or, or whatever it is, then, then that's great. That gives you something to work with. But if you go into a room and there's people who are pretty hostile to each other or, or very, very suspicious of each other's motives, as happens across politics, uh, bringing your experience, as you say, your sort of your clinical experience as a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst, what technical measures can you actually bring to try and cultivate those relationships? Well, the thing is, as human beings, one of our natural instincts is to form relationships with other people, to engage with them. And then, of course, what happens from time to time is that we're either rewarded, encouraged, enriched by that, and or 
we find that we get a bit frightened of the other person. We, we're suspicious of their motives. They say or do something or behave in a kind of way that sets us back and makes us a bit antagonistic to them. Or, we, or they look like somebody or sound like somebody with whom we had a bad experience before and therefore we're immediately already on the defensive and, and, and angry. Some people find ways of overcoming this in surprising ways. I'll give you an example. Dr Ian Paisley. Now, most people uh, in, in the rest of the UK, and many people in Northern Ireland too, would simply find him a truculent, difficult, angry sort of a guy who said all sorts of horrible things, which is absolutely true. And when he was operating in the political context, and indeed to some extent in the religious context, that's the way he would behave. But he also had the capacity to relate to people in a, in a warm humorous, positive kind of way. If he hadn't had that, he wouldn't have been successful as a politician or as a church leader. For example, my deputy for much of that time was uh, a very old friend, Seamus Close. He died not very long ago, sadly. As you will hear from his name, Seamus Close, he was from the Catholic nationalist background, but he was a firmly committed member of the Alliance Party. And he had a little girl who was absolutely the apple of his eye. And during the talks process, it became clear that she had developed uh, leukaemia. And Seamus and his wife, Deirdre, were, were devastated by this. And Ian heard about this. And repeatedly during the talks process, just before we would get into, you know, sometimes a quite difficult debate about politics, he'd come over and say to Seamus, Seamus, how's the wee girl doing? It wasn't a kind of, I'm trying to manipulate this guy. He had no need to do it at all. But there was that part of him that engaged with people at a human level. That's why he was so powerful. That's why he was so able to be successful, because he was able to do that. Now, the fact that there was another bit is an interesting comment on us as human beings. We can split off various parts of the way we form relationships. But without that capacity to relate to people, remember their names, engage with what was of a matter of concern for them, he wouldn't have been able to be so successful. You've completely anticipated the next question I was going to ask, actually, We're triggered by that, because I, I think this is so interesting. The number of times I've encountered uh, in politics people in, in very senior positions uh, where the public perception of who they are is at odds with everything that is said about them privately. Now, Gordon Brown is a classic example of someone who everyone said you know, privately was capable of warmth and humour, uh, and engagement and then you put him in front of a microphone and a tv camera and he became uh, robotic and cold and alienated people uh, john major also very big gap between how he was perceived and all the reports of what he was like in private and i wonder and you talked about splitting there uh, i wonder to what extent that is an inevitable function of of the political life that you have to basically create this sort of uh, border down your own personality where you have your private self and your public self I'm not sure how inevitable it is, but I think it's a very, very common thing. One reason is that people often feel a need to shelter their private self. When you are actually being yourself, you're opening yourself up to vulnerability. You're taking down the defences, and that means that you can be hurt, you can be damaged much more easily. If, if people know about who you are, um, then they can hurt you even more. If you open to any individual in a relationship and they get to know about you and you get to know about them, you can have a warm, nourishing relationship, but you're also vulnerable to being more hurt. And I've seen quite a number of politicians. You've mentioned a couple of them. It was true, by the way, of Hillary Clinton as well. 
I remember meeting her in a number of contexts and there was a sort of coolness and distance. And then she came to see me in the Northern Ireland Assembly and we spent a couple of hours just wandering around Parliament buildings. And I talked about this and that. She was funny. She was amusing. She was warm. She was a completely different kind of person. And of course, it, you know, in the end, it destroyed her politically uh, because people felt uh, that she was distant and cold and so on, which was not the real person. So some of it is about protecting yourself against an increasingly hostile world that politics has become. It's a pretty, it's a pretty dangerous, horrible place, politics. Well, it's a nasty business, exactly. And, and that, this raises then another question, which is something that I've been fascinated by for a long time, which is how much is cause and how much is effect here. And what I've noticed, you know, I've now been around the Westminster long enough to have followed MPs through their careers when they sort of become, when there's newbie MPs just elected and then they rise through the ranks. And what I wonder, having observed this, is whether to begin with, uh, you, you start out with the best of intentions to be open and be yourself as much as you can. What you realise is that the other side are so ferociously against you because of what you, what you represent, the party that you are, rather than who you are, that you have to discount the attacks that they are levelling against you. You have to thicken your skin very quickly. And then once you've developed that thick skin, it's then very hard. That becomes part of your personality. So as it were, you develop a robotic personality just through this iterative process of being attacked all the time. I think that is certainly part of it in politics. But, you know, it happens in other places as well because of the inevitable disappointments of, of the reality of life. For example, I noticed over a period of time for some, by no means all, but for some of my colleagues in medicine, they would come in in the way that you've described the new BMP. They would come in with all sorts of enthusiasm. They wanted to help people. They weren't into the whole business of making money and so on. They would have, you know, they were bright people. They could have done far more by making money in other situations. They came in to serve people, to help people, to, to be healers and so on and so on. And as time went on and they began to discover that it's very difficult to get people well. You establish a relationship with a patient and they don't always get better. Sometimes they get worse. And, and many of them die, despite your very best efforts. And that's extremely painful. Then, in addition to all of that, you're necessarily working in a bureaucracy whose job it is to, to deliver care to huge numbers of people, rather than to every single individual person. That's, that's inevitable, but it's very difficult and it's a struggle. And, and not everybody is able to sustain themselves in such a way as to survive. So... And then politics. I mean, politicians have discovered over a number of years that if you actually tell people the truth about things, they don't vote for you. They vote for illusions. I wonder, going back on what you said earlier, whether this is a process that happens to, to people in politics or whether there is a kind of a political personality a priori that that is attracted to this kind of life that, that there's almost a kind of a pathological state that is a politician and those people do well in politics i think it's more the kind of inevitability of having to face um some real challenges and difficulties that won't go away um and the difficulty of facing those challenges let me give you a couple of examples with this problem of the virus, COVID-19, I hear people saying things like, um, COVID doesn't respect borders. You know, this, this affects all of us. This is nonsense. 
Of course it has to accept borders. Otherwise, you would have no difference between what's happening in France and what's happening in Germany. In fact, the whole principle of social distancing is that you put a boundary between yourself and other people, a boundary which isn't a line, but a space that makes it difficult for the virus to cross that space to infect another person. Secondly, say it, 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 the virus is no respecter of people and, and the difference between people. Of course it's a respecter of difference. The whole thing that we've discovered is, for example, that older people are much more likely to be affected than younger people. And that's because as you get older, your immune system doesn't work as well and work in the same way. So, so people in that sense are not equal. People are different. I'm not even equal to myself 10 or 15 years ago. I'm much more vulnerable, for example, to, to a virus. Now, when you start saying those kinds of things, you are challenging what people would like to believe about the reality of the world. And if you start facing those kinds of things, it's very tough. I mean, I listened to, to Chris Whitty, the, the chief uh, medical officer, a man of extraordinary ability, integrity and experience, whom we are very fortunate to have. And he's saying to people, you know, this this virus isn't going to go away. It's not, we, we can't defeat the virus. We can manage the virus. There's only one disease that we've really got rid of, and that was smallpox, and we did it through a vaccination program. We don't have a vaccination program. We don't yet have a vaccine. Some of the treatments uh, that we were hoping would be helpful have proved to not be very successful. This is a really, really difficult thing. He has to present that reality. Well, at the same time, the politician has to present some kind of idea that, that, that he can deliver um, uh, what people hope for, which is to defeat the virus. You see this exactly in the debate about an exit strategy from lockdown, as if there will come a point where the metrics show there's victory and that the virus has sort of surrendered in some way, uh, and it's sort of VE day against COVID. Whereas the reality, as... as you know, you've said is that leaving situation of lockdown with in the absence of a vaccine means you're sort of accepting that this disease will affect people and therefore kill people at a rate that the NHS can manage. So the announcement of everyone come out of your homes, go back to work a little bit, actually contains something that no politician wants to admit, which is, and some of you will die as a result. Now that's a very extreme way of putting it, but uh, and, and a sort of a brutal utilitarian way of expressing it. But that is sort of the reality of it. And you can see, therefore, why politicians don't want to express it or really engage properly with what it means to say, let's, let's resume something like the life we had before. You're quite right about that. And let me take you back to an earlier stage in this process when what was being talked about was so-called herd immunity. And the idea of that was that enough people in the community had to develop an immunity to the virus you didn't have everybody in the community didn't have to develop immunity, but a significant percentage had to, so that although individual people could still get it, it wouldn't transmit quickly enough to amount to an epidemic, never mind a pandemic. Now, people didn't like the implication of it, which was that until we got immunity, we could not defeat this virus. But that is the reality that you're referring to. And, and there are only a few ways that we can address this. One is that sufficient people get immunity that uh, the infection can transmit, but not as an, an epidemic. And there are really only two ways you can do that. One is by having a vaccine that works, which we don't have, and it's likely to take quite a while to develop. And the other is to 
be infected, but out of that to develop immunity. There aren't any other ways. Apart from that, all you can do is delay by distancing or treat people when they get it. What I think you're touching on here is something I'm fascinated by, uh, which is the difficulty in politics of communicating complexity and uncertainty kind of through a loud hailer system that's rigged for simplicity and instant gratification. I mean, at the start of the current crisis, I was quite cheered to see scientists and doctors in press conferences. It, it seemed that the experts were being let back into the room uh, and that we were maybe going to have a, a more nuanced conversation uh, but already I think we've hit the limits of that uh, and a more traditional, rougher, coarser kind of politics is coming back. The difficulty really is anxiety. When individuals and whole communities of people become very frightened, whether for uh, a very realistic reason or whether for a, a fantasy reason, but when they get very frightened about something, then they start to react in various kinds of ways. This has actually been happening for a number of years. As people have looked at the consequences of globalisation, not just that I can go somewhere else, but somebody else can come to my place, I can go and enjoy their culture if I go for a short time, but if they come and live in my culture, they begin to change my culture in a rapid way, which I feel uncomfortable about, or... We talk about artificial intelligence, the impact it's going to have on jobs, on security, on the decisions, for example. Will AI decide when a nuclear device is released or will it be a military officer that decides it? So as people begin to think of the enormity of technology and the way it is changing the world, they get very frightened of globalisation, of climate change, all of these things. So what happens when people get frightened, they look for certainty about things that you cannot actually be certain about. And so they become nationalistic. Our people are good, those people are bad. They become religiously fundamentalist. I am certain about this, when actually it's something you can't be certain about at all. And in the context of uh, the virus, we, as you rightly say, we turn to experts because we believe they can get us out of a problem but actually, the experts, when they are being honest, have to tell us about the size of the problem, which isn't a fantasy problem. It's a real problem. And then we begin to get cross with the experts because they can't deliver us from something which is a consequence of reality, not a consequence of what we would wish to be reality. Then you start looking for people who promise to deliver you through nationalism, fundamentalism, or whatever, and that usually ends up in trouble. This is going to be an enormous test of the, the character uh, of, our, of our political leaders, isn't it? Those leaders, they may be as capable as they like, but if the population decides it is too frightened to stick with the reality that they're trying to tell them, then they will be got rid of in favour of other people who will sell another potion that will promise to deliver, and people will turn to that. You've seen it in the United States of America, never mind... In any other country. Sorry, I was going to say that that potentially quite a pessimistic view of, and sort of inclination. I am a bit of a pessimist, so I want to try and resist that and try and steer us in another direction. But I now can't now remember what it was. What was I going to say? You're in a sense making the point for me because you're saying your your natural instincts make you anxious, and therefore you want to turn away from that. And I'm going to say to you, no, no, no. Stick with your natural instincts for a minute. Let's acknowledge 
that this is a very frightening circumstance. What does that tell us? That tells us that as human beings, we are not simply rational. So any notion, for example, that the market was a rational instrument for redistribution is a piece of nonsense. The market isn't rational. The market operates all the time on the basis of feelings. What does that tell us? That tells us that there's quite a problem about the whole enlightenment notion that you can run a society on an entirely rationalist basis. You can't. Because people have feelings. So you need to understand the feelings, speak about them, think about them, and start to develop a whole approach to philosophy and politics which addresses the complexity of who we are as human beings individually and as a community, which is not just rational. We need to take account of those sides of us that are not rational. And that develops a whole new approach to philosophy and politics. And, and in that sense, you may say, well, oh, goodness, we don't know the answer. Well, we don't. That's true. But, but there is a direction of travel that is possible for us that may enable us to make as big a change to the way of understanding who we are and how we run ourselves as the changes that were made at the time of the Enlightenment and before that. Our opportunity, as well as our challenge and danger, is as a society to take the kind of leaps forward over the problem, through the problem, beyond the problem, that maybe only gets taken every few hundred years. And that's our challenge but it's also our opportunity. That is an opportunity and quite an enticing one. But I think a lot of people following politics over the last few years will be very frustrated that what they've seen as the, the moderate or the centre ground position has really failed to articulate their positions, whether it's the pro-European position or the anyone but Donald Trump position. Uh, they've failed to articulate those in a way that is emotionally resonant. So what's happened is they've got trapped in this hyper-rational technocratic space and have been pushed aside by people who are better at reaching into the emotions. So what, it, what are the ways in which you could, you could do emotional mobilization, make that process work, but also from the, what we might call the more moderate, reasonable ground? I think you can't do it by some kind of rationalistic trickery. In other words, you have to take seriously that as human beings, the reason we have been able to evolve and survive and thrive is not just because of our rational way of thinking, but because of the emotional way of thinking, which may very often come up against the rational and tell us that there's an outcome that is different from and sometimes even conflicts with the rational. So, for example... Um, one of my colleagues, uh, Dominic Johnson at uh, Oxford, is publishing a book shortly where he will point out that those who look rationally, for example, at military tactics um, and think that that will bring them a victory may be mistaken. He gives the example of Washington. If you look at all the practicalities and all the ways in which Washington was set back and defeated, the, the power of the enemy he was fighting, which was, of course, the British state. And so there is no way he should have won. He should have lost. He was ludicrously overconfident. If he hadn't been overconfident, if he had been realistic and rationally weighed up the pros and cons, he would have given up and gone home. The only reason he survived, and it dramatically changed the future of the world, was because he was not realistic, he was overconfident, and he was able to continue to do things that should have led to defeat but didn't.
I find this not all that encouraging, and I'm going to say why. I had a very interesting conversation with someone who was well-connected in US politics and, and more or less asked the same question that I asked you a moment ago to Barack Obama, you know, which was essentially, how do people who want to do your type of politics, Mr. Former President, uh, how do they cut through now in the era of populism uh, and where you, you're up against these people who see these sort of charlatans, essentially, who seem to be very good at capturing emotional urgency? Uh, and the answer he got, in short, was, was essentially, uh, be Barack Obama, you know, be better at it. Uh, you know, and, and, and listening to what you've just said, I think, well, it's, it's kind of easier if you happen to be George Washington. And therefore, the sort of solution that I think a lot of us are looking for in politics now comes down to where is our George Washington? Where is the person, the character who will suddenly do for a more moderate, reasonable politics? People who we might consider awful have very effectively done for more radical politics. You see, I think the difficulty is that what often gets called moderate, reasonable, um, progressive, and so on, is simply rationalistic thinking. It's not taking care. I remember, for example, when I started off as leader of the Alliance Party, there were many of the people in the party and supporters from outside who said, you know, it's all this religious problem. And the way we're going to get beyond that is find a way of setting aside this these religious understandings of things and, and get beyond that to a, a liberal, tolerant uh, place in our society. And I said, that's nonsense. That's not going to work. And it's not going to work because what religion is about is representing something that is emotionally powerful for people. And what we need to do is to find a way of helping those for whom that way of thinking and feeling is important to address their relationships with those who see their way as a different way. We need to find, in, other, in, in simplistic terms, we, it's not a question of persuading people to forget about Protestantism and Catholicism in Northern Ireland, but rather to see that they can engage with each other and hold on to these emotional as well as intellectual values that they have. And that's what actually happened. That's what actually happened. Uh, and, and one of the difficulties, for example, for people on the so-called progressive liberal wing is they've actually become more intolerant of people with different perspectives, whether they are political perspectives or religious perspectives or whatever, rather than saying, actually, these people are getting a hold of something which may not be quite what they think and what they describe, but it's an essential component of individual and communal human nature. And we need to understand that and we need to address it. Democrats, for example, in the United States have not seriously addressed what they did to create Donald Trump. They want to blame other people for the arrival of Donald Trump. Whereas, in fact, it's quite clear that many of the people who have been traditional Democrat supporters felt left behind by a whole set of attitudes that developed amongst progressive Democrats uh, that, that they didn't identify with. And they felt forgotten, ignored, dismissed. Uh, disregarded, disrespected, actually, as well. Now, an equivalent dynamic happened in, in the UK with the Brexit debate. I think there were a lot of people on the Remain side who really didn't help their argument after 2016 by either explicitly or implicitly suggesting that Leave voters were all stupid racists and you're not going to persuade people to change their minds on the European Union when you, you're prefacing it with what amounts to a kind of a cultural insult. Uh, but just to put the other side of that a second, uh, there, there must surely be a limit where you empathise with what motivates people to support a certain proposition or vote for it, but then ultimately hit a dead end where you say, but the solution that you've alighted on 
is is ethically intolerable. So you, I, I, what I struggle with is the idea that you sort of empathise your way into uh, seeing people's what we might call irrational or non-rational uh, what their needs that have made them choose, say, Donald Trump as president. Um, and then where you draw the line, which is, but I'm not going to appease a political movement that I think is actually starting to look, well, a lot of people would say it's looking genuinely fascistic in some ways. So how, where does empathy meet appeasement? The simple answer is relationships and conversation. But let me expand on that. When in the Brexit campaign, people on the Remain side started to act in absolutely the way that you characterise, two things happened. First of all, they increasingly disregarded the way the European project itself had gone wrong. And I could say quite a lot about that. But, but the European project itself uh, had gone wrong and people on the pro-Remain side, and I've been saying this to colleagues for a number of years, were not sufficiently critical of the way the European project was being conducted. It was almost like a kind of European nationalism, Europe, right or wrong. Um, we support it because we were pro-Europe. They forgot what Europe was about. Europe was a peace project. Europe was not about creating the euro. It was not about a seat at the top table of world affairs for leaders of small countries in Europe. It was not about that. It was about... it. Was, these were instruments to ensure that Europe didn't go back to war. Europe itself then became the subject of a conflict. And it didn't ask itself properly, why? Why have we gone from being the solution to conflict to becoming the basis for conflict, albeit not violent conflict, but nevertheless? So people then on the Remain side started to become as fundamentalist about Europe and about Remain as people on the other side were. We're kind of running short of the time, and I don't want to get, go down the, the rabbit hole of, of relitigating what went wrong with the Remain campaign in particular, which I could have discussed with you. That's a whole separate conversation. So I just want to finish really um, with one going back a stage, because what you described sounds sort of theoretically very appealing. And my concern, I would say, is, again, looking at this, uh, you, you bring a, a psychiatrist and a psychoanalyst approach to this. And I sometimes worry that the analytical mode, the ability to see both sides uh, of a problem is just that ends up being a handicap in politics uh, because ultimately politics favours people who take decisive action. Uh, and, and what you're actually describing is an aspiration that very quickly in the highest executive officers just can't be applied. Bill, I was the leader of a political party for 11 years in Northern Ireland. When I became the leader, people said, you're wasting your time, it's a load of nonsense, nothing will ever be solved here, there'll never be any agreements, the violence will continue. Uh, nice guy, but exactly as you say, you know, psychiatrist, but Ulster will not go on the couch. By the time I finished up as leader 11 years later, we had had the negotiations, the IRA had brought their campaign to a close, we were able to have an assembly, with all its ups and downs, nobody seriously expects that we're going back to war. We have found a way of disagreeing with each other without killing each other, which is what politics is about, more than a way of agreeing. All of those things are, are, are entirely possible. That doesn't mean they're easy. It doesn't mean they can be done quickly. But it does mean that some of us need to try to commit ourselves to a different way of thinking and engaging about these things. And that includes those people who think of themselves as on the liberal progressive front because they have contributed 
as much as people on the other side to getting us into this fix because they felt they'd arrived at a final understanding of the way the human race functions. And they haven't. And we never will. And we need to understand that it's always a stage of moving. It's like thinking you've sorted out a relationship. At the point where you think you've sorted the relationship, it is already in trouble. Because relationships are dynamic, organic things that you have to continue to work on for the rest of your life or the rest of the relationship. Now, it sounds like you're talking about politics as a therapeutic journey. Uh, and so this seems like a good good point to end with because I now feel like I've sort of had my therapy session uh, as, as the incarnation of someone who's very stressed and anxious about the state of politics. Uh, so at the end of the session, what, what is your advice? You, you tell UK politics to leave the room. What should politics be working on? What's the next stage of our therapeutic journey? I think it is for us to understand on all sides that none of us have the answer to the biggest challenges that face us, that the other side politically has a perspective that we need to engage with, and we ourselves need to be prepared to go beyond the ways of thinking that we have had until now, even those ways that we thought were absolutely fundamental principles. We need to be prepared to engage with them and challenge with them, because the future is not about beliefs about right and wrong. It's about how we develop relationships beyond the disturbed historic relationships that we have had and into a new way of relating and engaging with each other, which is never easy. It'll be bumpy. And it's never sorted. It's always in process. But it also has enormously rewarding possibilities for us. That's brilliant. Um, I, we obviously, I could keep going on forever. I've just had my wife come in and tell me she needs to teach a maths lesson from this computer. <laughs> so that's, that's pretty much whether we like it or not. That's that, the end. That's, that's, that's the reality of partnership and relationships. They set down important boundaries. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, look, you've given us so much of your time there. That's really fantastic. I hope you found it not too innovating. No, not at all. That's great. All the best. All the best, Philip. Cheers. Bye. Bye. How did the math lesson go? I mean, obviously you weren't taking it, so... No, exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm very lucky uh, to be married to a maths teacher because it means that late in life I've got substantially better at maths and understood a lot more of it than I did when I was at school. Isn't there a famous quote about the most important thing in politics is being able to add up? Who said that? Uh, being able to count. I think that, might be, from, count. <laughs> I think that <laughs> might be from, from Lyndon Johnson or it might be from the... A Danish TV show Borgen or it might be from both uh, but it's certainly something that is said and it normally is used to refer to whether or not you can get a majority for your position so having the arguments uh, or the strategy or the tactics is fine but if you haven't got enough people to vote if you can't add up those votes you're not going anywhere and that is definitely true. Turning our attention back to our chat with John um, when you moved on to the topic of uh, liberal progressives I thought it was really interesting that he was quite keen to question how tolerant they really are of uh, other political parties one of the things I enjoyed about that conversation is I found it uh, perhaps more challenging than I expected to as you say because I thought well you know we're going to be uh, terribly moderate and liberal and progressive and agreeing about all sorts of things and actually uh, particularly his his account of of everything that went wrong with the Remain campaign uh, and specifically the failure to find flaw with the European project 
uh, he correctly identified, I think, that, that I was starting to get a bit defensive about that because I'm a big supporter of the European project. And, and so I found uh, I was quite pleased in a way that he sort of drilled a little bit into that in a way that I found um, quite uncomfortable. This question of whether there is such a thing as as a liberal fundamentalism, this, this how this sort of paradoxical idea of of liberal intolerance. Like a lot of people in the period 2016 to 2019, uh, I did slip into some quite fundamentalist thinking on the European question. Uh, more generally, I you know I think following on from that that question of how you navigate, as it were, from a liberal perspective believing that you're right about certain very important moral issues while also reaching out and trying to understand what it is that motivates people who you feel you want to persuade, even though you think they might be wrong. I mean, I, I think I phrased it in that conversation as the tension between empathy and appeasement. Uh, that is something that I will have to sort of go away and think a little bit harder about now because he's, I'm sure he's right that personal relationships are the way you navigate through that but i'm still left a little bit hungry for a sense of what enacting that in practice looks like what is a practical politics of turning dialogue and relationships into bluntly speaking to winning the argument for for a liberal position when we feel that nationalism and populism are, are sort of running rampant I, I don't yet didn't feel we quite got to the bottom of that yeah, and I also feel like John is coming from a very different place from us. He comes from a background where there's a lot of sectarianism, a lot of strong religious affiliations, and therefore for him, it was almost a necessity that you had to talk. Yeah, I think that's definitely something that if we'd had more time and certainly a better internet connection, uh, we could have talked about a bit more. Maybe you have to reach a point of or where there's so much fatigue and frustration at, at the really extreme end of politics or the violence that people are ready to have a different kind of dialogue. I mean, uh, you know, John Alderdice had, had come, as you said, from, from that, that Northern Ireland experience. I'm sure, you know, we're lucky in a way we, we talk about our polarised politics with regard to remain and leave and, and uh, Labour, Tory and other issues. But actually, that's as a pretty tame kind of conflict that stays mostly sort of on the internet and uh, in the chamber of the house of commons uh, and and we could probably all of us have a bit of humility uh, with regard to people who have had to make much more profound compromises he talked about you know ian paisley sitting across the table from martin mcginnis you know you think about uh yitak rabin shaking hands with yasser arafat and nelson mandela uh, holding hands with uh, de Klerk, you know, these are people who had a very clear sense of 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 where, where their ethical position was, uh, but also what they had to do to reach out and talk to people who had quite literally, in many cases, wanted to kill them. So that's again something that we would, you know, with her, we could have, or maybe you can in the future go into in more depth. There's so much in this, so many more kind of questions and, and, and issues that we can, you know, go back to just, you know, even John on, on his own, let alone all the other um, interviewees we've got lined up. And to just think what we could achieve if we actually had uh, people in the same room at the same time. Although uh, let's not get our hopes up about that. Uh, it's, I think it's going to be doing it over uh, various bits of software uh, for and dodgy internet connections for, for a while to come. But I'm still glad that people are listening and 
thank you everyone for listening if you've made it this far and uh, thank you for those people who sent in their thoughts and questions um keep them coming a big thank you to out yonder.tv who composed our theme music and uh, mixed the episode though any shortcomings in the sound are purely down to uh down to me because we're recording in lockdown conditions oh yeah they've, they've asked me to say that they also do animations and illustrations and they're awesome as that's according to them no they are they are really okay so and thank you uh, phil for producing this and for inviting me uh, to host it i appreciate that i'm enjoying this so you know you really don't need to thank me okay okay that's the last thanks you're getting <laughs> on that note um see you in a couple of weeks time goodbye bye i think we've got something there i think some of that will be nice i think that'll be Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.